Good morning, everybody. My name is Tim Porter, one of the pastors here at Faith Community. Thank you for joining us for worship here in the building and also online. Thank you so much for joining us on this glorious, glorious weekend. It's good to be together in this way, especially when it's so beautiful out. Um, uh, we are in a series called He is Greater, and this series is, in, is on, is based on a book of the Bible called the book of Hebrews. And just by way of reminder, as we jump in, uh, the, the book is written to some first followers of Jesus who were in an urban context, and uh, they were surrounded by uh, a lot of different religions, a lot of different religions. They lived in, like, sort of America. They lived in a pluralistic society where a lot of different people believed in a lot of different things. They most likely grew up as Jewish people and then came to Jesus seeing that Jesus was the Messiah that they had long waited for. And living in that context and maybe talking with some friends and some family members uh, talking, who are Jewish still, they were being persuaded to go back into what they grew up in. Go back into uh, following the law and, the, and uh, the law of Moses and the temple structure and the sacrifices and uh, the food laws and all the different things that are outlined in the Old Testament. Um, there was pressure from the outside to do this. They were not wondering or they were not like seeking to leave God. Like they weren't seeking to leave God, like stop disbelieving or stop believing in God and then go, go to a spot of atheism or agnosticism or anything like that. What they, were, what they were looking for and what they were trying to figure out is what is the best way to relate to God? What's the best way to relate to God? Now, in their context, again, both family, if they grew up in, in Israel or grew up Jewish, there was the temple, there were sacrifices, there were prayers that were offered, there was, it was all official. And then even their neighbors, even their neighbors, if they didn't grow up as Jews, they were Gentiles, they had temples and sacrifices and all kinds of things that they could go to that was official that you could see and participate in. And so they were wondering, is staying true to Jesus the best way to relate to God? Or is going back into the old structures of the Law and Moses and following the commands and the rituals, is that the best way to relate to God? And the author of Hebrews is writing to them saying, look, big picture, I know that you're wrestling about what's the best way to approach God, but you need to know that if you go back to the old way, you're actually leaving God. You're actually leaving God if you go back to the old way. And so what the author is doing over and over and over again is he's comparing and contrasting the old ways and showing that Jesus is greater. And today he's going to be talking to us about our conscience, our conscience, and that Jesus is able to do something greater for our conscience than anybody or any other religion can do. Now I know we don't talk a lot about conscience, and we'll you know, bring up Jiminy Cricket here in just a few moments, but it's really important about conscience. And so today, we're going to be reading from and learning from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, and it's found on page 1005, and the Bible's in front of you. And I've got three movements today as we walk through. One is I want to introduce you to your conscience, and then two, I want to talk about the problem with our conscience. And then three, a phrase from this passage, how Jesus is the eternal redemption 
for our conscience. Okay? So again, Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 12, 1005. And if you're new here at Faith Community, uh, welcome, special welcome to you. I just want you to know that I'm going to read and then I'm going to say at the end of my reading, this is the word of the Lord, and then all of us together are going to say, thanks be to God, because we believe God is speaking to us. And so online as well, make sure you do it loudly so we can hear you, okay? All right, thank you. Someone thought, heard that that was a joke, and that just, thank you. That just makes my heart happy. Okay, okay. <clears throat> Verse 9, or verse 1, chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, and the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the gold urn uh, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now of these things we cannot now speak in detail, which is sort of good because if he did, I think the book of Hebrews would be like 500 pages long. Okay. Now verse 5, coming back to verse 5. Uh, no, verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, he but once a year, and not without taking, taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is of this, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now again, conscience. Um, we don't talk as much or, and we're not uh, in, in, our, in our conversations about our consciences. Maybe we'll say something at times like, well, my conscience is clear. I feel good about this. But we don't have a, a lot of conversation today as maybe we used to in the past about the importance of our consciences. <clears throat> You know, Disney has made a big deal of our conscience, you know, with Jiminy Cricket. And, you know, whenever Pinocchio did something that violated what Jiminy Cricket said to do, it got bad for him, right? Some of the times when we talk about our conscience, it's in maybe cartoon form. And we have a picture of an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. And they are telling us, uh, or telling the individual what to do. This is a good thing to do. This is a bad thing to do. Don't do this. Yeah, you can do it. You'll be okay. And we're trying to articulate something about what's going on in us as we are trying to figure out what's the best thing to do or if it's a good thing to do or if it's wrong to do, right? Well, even though we don't talk that much about conscience, we still have one. And the Bible gives great care in talking about the conscience, 
It's a strong theme in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, in two different letters, 1 Corinthians and the letter to the Romans, spends chapters talking about conscience and how to live with our conscience and how to relate with one another when we have different calibrations in our consciences for what is right and wrong and how to live. The Apostle Paul also in 1 Timothy talks a great deal about trying to live with a certain kind of clean conscience. And the author of Hebrews actually is one of the authors in the Bible that talks the most about the conscience. It's mentioned three times in a section that we're just entering into today. The first one is in our passage for today, verse 9, talking about the different sacrifices and the offerings. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, verse 9, that cannot perfect the conscience of a worshiper. Cannot perfect the conscience of a worshiper. What does it mean to perfect the conscience of a worshiper? Why is that such a big deal? Verse 14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A little bit later on in chapter 10, 22, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Then lastly, pray for us, chapter 3, verse 18, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. To be a human being is to have a conscience, is to have a conscience. My dog, Charlie, at times, looks like he has a conscience because he ducks his head and his tail goes between his legs and he feels like he's done something wrong, but he does not sit there and deliberate, should I do this, should I not do this? He operates by instinct. By instinct. You and I, as human beings, we have a conscience. And it's a gift that God has given to us. It's a gift that God has given to us. This weekend, my wife and I bought some new appliances for our house, and we bought a new stove. And I was just reminded again and again one of the stoves, the type of stove we bought was an induction stove. And one of the safety features of an induction stove is it cools down almost automatically, even if you boiled water after a minute. The stovetop isn't hot to burn you, but you know, think about our sense of touch. Our sense of touch helps us not to be more harmed than we could be if we didn't have our sense of touch. People with leprosy who don't have a sense of touch can, be, can do a lot of damage to themselves, and our conscience functions that way. It helps us avoid doing wrong, doing things that can do us great harm and do our relationships great, great harm. But just to introduce you a little bit to your conscience, if you haven't thought about yourself and your conscience for some time, your conscience, when you start to pay attention to it, functions like a third party in you, doesn't it? It's like this, it's like a part of you, but it's not you in a strange kind of way. Your conscience, just at a high level, is your awareness, your consciousness of right and wrong. Your conscience, one author says this, is looking at the Bible and how the Bible puts this all together. Andy Nacelli talks about how your conscience functions for you as a part of you and also you as a guide, a monitor, a witness, and a judge. A guide, a monitor, a witness, and a judge. 
Your conscience guides you. As you look into the future, your conscience guides you into if I'm in this circumstance or if I'm in this situation, if I'm given this kind of opportunity, this is how it is right to relate. This is how it's wrong to relate. This is what's right to do. This is what's wrong to do. Your conscience helps guide you to conform to moral standards. But your conscience also monitors Are you living according to those moral standards? And if you are living according to your moral standards or to moral standards, then your conscience is a witness to that. Your your conscience is clear. We use that phrase. We've already read it. My conscience is clear. I've done nothing wrong here. I've done everything that I should do. I'm right in this situation. So your conscience can be a witness to you that you've done something right and you've avoided wrong. But then your conscience also is a judge. A judge that condemns when you've done something wrong. And our conscience can look back on what we've done and can be so exacting, so persnickety in its attention to detail, and then load all kinds of guilt and shame on you, that's really hard to bear. At times, your conscience doesn't feel like a friend at all. It feels like an enemy. Again, it's a part of you. It's a gift from God. Helps you deliberate and understand and live out what is morally good. But it also has this power to judge and condemn. Feel shame. We know we're guilty. And that's the problem with our conscience. Maybe you've used this phrase before. Maybe maybe you've felt this way before. It's not, you don't live long. You don't live long, I think, until you've done something to such a degree to somebody else that you feel like there is no way I can forgive myself for this. Now, the Bible doesn't use that kind of language, but as I try to put that, langu- that kind of language together with how the Bible talks about us as human beings, that seems to be like conscience language. When we've done something so wrong to somebody, we feel like we can't forgive ourselves. Why? Because our conscience is telling us you're guilty. You're guilty, you're guilty, you're wrong. And then shame kicks in. And shame doesn't, your conscience doesn't just tell you that you've done wrong, your conscience starts to tell you, you are wrong. You are wrong. Now our conscience, again, helps us make wise decisions, good decisions, but it also has this condemning function that there are all kinds of people, and I've lived this way at times as well, living under the burden of a conscience that tells you you are wrong. One of our options is to try to do things that are good to try to make up for the wrong that we've done. That you're, you're trying to appease and assuage your conscience. 
doesn't work that way, though. Now, another element of our conscience is that when our conscience is speaking to us of the wrong that we have done, it's not just talking to us about our own personal values and if we've offended our own personal values. That's a part of it. But again, our conscience is a gift from God. And it's intended by God to keep us in relationship with him. And when our conscience is condemning us and saying that we've done something wrong, our conscience is letting us know that our relationship with God is not right. We haven't just done something wrong relationally with other human beings and how we've talked or thought or acted. It's also in relationship with God. Our conscience also lets us know that we're not worthy to be in the presence of God. We've done something that puts our relationship at odds and we can't go into his presence. I've mentioned this now a couple times this year and I'll, I, I promise I'll try to stop mentioning this, but you know, when people find out that I'm a pastor in a conversation... Again, one of the things that they do, it's fascinating to watch, is like they start replaying, okay, what did I just say? Why? Well, for better or for worse, there's something about being a pastor that I represent God to people. And if I find out that you're a pastor, I'm starting to replay, what did I do, what did I say, because I'm wondering, am I okay in the presence of God? So it's happening. It's one of the dynamics. Our conscience lets us know that we are not right in our relationship with God and we're not fit to be in his presence. And God wants us in his presence. God made us to be in his presence. God draws us, wants to, us to draw near to his presence. And so God has something that he needs to fix in us so that we can come into his presence because we're not fit to come into his presence because of what we've done. And so, long ago, God set up the sacrificial system for the people of Israel. He set up the sacrificial system to start to teach us what it's like to relate to him as a holy God and we being sinful people. And so there are two stages of this sacrificial system. The first one was set up, was what's called the tabernacle. And that's what the people, that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about in this section. The tabernacle was a tent. It was a movable tent, and it was to be in the midst of the center of the people of Israel as the tribes were orchestrated around it and camped around it. So it was a central piece of the people of Israel, this tabernacle was. Eventually, the tabernacle was fulfilled by the temple. And now the temple's been destroyed, and Jesus says that I'm the true temple, the place where God and man meet together. But there was something really important in what God was trying to teach and to show in the tabernacle and in then later the temple that was created or built by Solomon, King Solomon, David's son. And in this section of scripture, the author of Hebrews wants to highlight for us the tabernacle and specifically two specific spots, two sections of the tabernacle. One was the holy place. And then there was the most holy place or the holy of holies. 
And these are really important to understand the argument. One is the holy place, the most holy place was the one on the outside. If you, had to, if you wanted to get into, as a high priest, if you wanted to get into the holy of holy place, uh, only, one, only one person could do that one time a year, and that was the high priest. You would have to pass through sacrifices out in the outer court, and then sacrifices and in the holy place, and then offer sacrifices to be able to get into the holy of holies. And he's focused on these two sacrifices. The holy place included the lampstands that represented um, God's light and goodness in his presence. The incense was offered daily as a symbol of the prayers. And then twice daily in the outer courts, sacrifices were being made. There was also the bread of the presence that the priests had to bake once a, once a week and place on the on the altar. And so in this holy place, there's all kinds of symbols talking about who God is and what he's like and what it's required, what's required for you to move close to God. And one of the things that's required to move close to God is animals being sacrificed. It's a bloody mess. But then there's also the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, only one person, one time a year can go in the Holy of Holies, and that's the priest, the high priest. And he can go in on what's called the Day of Atonement. And he had to offer, he couldn't just walk right in. He couldn't just walk right into the presence of God. It's like, hey, God, I'm here. He had to go in carefully, paying attention to every detail that God gave and also with sacrifices. Blood had to be spilled so that he could get into the presence of God. And a bull was offering, or a bull was sacrificed. So this is expensive as well. A big, huge bull is sacrificed. And then two male, male goats are sacrificed for the sin offering for the people. The goat being sacrificed is for the sins of the high priest going in. Now, as you start to think about this and start to imagine that Twice a day in the holy place, sacrifices are being offered. And then once a year, once a year for a high priest to be able to get into the presence of God, a bull has to be sacrificed. And then also two goats have to be sacrificed and blood sprinkled all over the place. Now, I've done plenty of field dressing in my life. It's a bloody mess. And there's blood all over the place when you're entering into the presence of God. And right away, you and I as moderns have a little bit of a problem with this. Why so much blood? What's the deal with blood? It seems barbaric. It's offensive. It seems really primitive. Why would God set it up this way? Why would God commission the killing of all kinds of animals just to get into his presence? Why so much blood that needs to be spilled just to get into his presence? A couple things I think that God is teaching us, teaching them and teaching us with the requirement of blood sacrifice. One, is that what's wrong with us? Blood sacrifice tells us that what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world is serious, deadly serious. What's going to fix our problems as human beings and what's going to fix the world is not simply more education, better policies, more distribution of wealth, 
The only thing that can actually fix our problems is serious, serious death. Gonna, maybe you have a friend like this. I have a couple of friends like this that they quote movies all the time. All the time. Like One of my friends, like I can't have a conversation with him for more than 15 minutes without two or three movie quotes coming up. And they cycle through, so I know they're coming, but still, they're there. And one of the movies that one of my friends loves to quote from is a movie called Fury. I don't know if you've seen Fury, Brad Pitt's the star in it, but it's, it's about the tanks, tank battles in Northern Africa during World War II. And there's a spot in the, at the beginning of the movie when a new recruit into the squad, into the team, the tank team, comes into the scene. His name is Norman, and he has a conversation with the religious guy in the tank who is called um, uh, Boyd Bible Swan because he quotes the Bible all the time. He's the religious one. But as they're talking about war and they're talking about what they're about to get into and being being in a fight with a tank, Boyd the Bible Swan says to Norman, wait till you see it. Just wait till you see it. And then Norman says back, we'll see what? And Boyd says, what a man can do to another man. In one sense, if you've seen Fury, or if you haven't, it's, it's a good movie, it's hard to watch. Because what, the, what they're trying to do in the movie is show the problem of humanity in the depth that we can go in harming other people. And what the blood sacrifices lets us know is that what we can do to other people is so serious that it requires that something die to write it, to write it. The second thing that blood sacrifices tell us is that we really are guilty We really are guilty. Like you and I can live with a guilty conscience and it's more about, you know, uh, if we've not done everything that we said we were going to do or if we've we've not, you know, done everything that we wanted to do or we can live with a kind of guilt and that kind of deal. But it's more self-imposed kind of guilt. But there is actually a real objective guilt that we all have as human beings. And what the blood sacrifices let us know is that our guilt is in relationship to God. To God. Not just our own you know, trying to live true to ourselves. It's a relationship to God. And he cares about that guilt. He cares about that guilt. And the sacrificial system was designed by God to start to teach us about our guilt and about our consciences and the severity of what we do to one another as human beings and the significance of it and his answer, God's answer for it. But there were two limiting factors, at least two limiting factors in the sacrificial system that God set up with the tabernacle and then with the temple. Two factors that, that didn't, re- that they, they were never, des- it was never designed to fully take away sin. It was designed to teach. And there were two factors that the tabernacle and the temple couldn't handle. One is that there was limited access to God. There was limited access to God. Only one time a year, 
Only one time a year, one person a year, for a very short time, could go into the presence of God. Limited access. But we're not made for limited access. We're actually made to live with the presence of God and not be afraid in his presence. To live harmoniously in the presence of God, with him with us. That's how we're made. One of my favorite pastors here at Faith Community actually isn't on staff. He's a retired pastor, and he's sitting right over here, and his name is Dave Root, and some of you know him. A wonderful servant. I love you, Dave. But I met Dave a long time ago, and Dave, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you remember, and I just realized I didn't ask you for permission to tell you the story. Now I ask for forgiveness. So, <laughs> um, but I met Dave. The first time I ever met Dave was at a prayer gathering with a bunch of other pastors in, in uh in uh, in our state and my friends and I were talking around a table and Dave came up and he he sat down and he just he just said to us he said it's all about a walk in the garden do you remember that Dave no okay (laughs) it had a profound impact on me (laughs) he said it's all about a walk in the garden and what he was referring to is it's all about how God began human history it began with God and human beings in presence with one another in the garden. That's what we're made for. We're designed to be in God's presence without fear and only to experience his care and his love and not cowering. But then Adam and Eve disobeyed. And what did they do immediately? They knew. Their conscience was letting them know. I'm not fit to be in the presence of God now. And so they hid. They hid. They tried to cover themselves up to make themselves presentable to God, but they couldn't do it. And the law and the tabernacle doesn't give us the access that we're really there for, that that we're really made for. The other thing that the author of Hebrews tells us is that There's a limiting factor in the law, in the the tabernacle as well, is that it couldn't actually cleanse our consciences. It couldn't do it. Verse 9, again, according to this arrangement, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It wasn't designed to do that. It dealt with things that were external, not with actually changing and cleansing the human heart from what we have done from what we have done, that keeps us from God. It was teaching what's necessary and what is needed to actually live in relationship with God without actually providing what it said we needed. Animals were there for a time, but the sacrifice of animals could never take away the guilt that we have in our conscience because of what we've done in our relationship with God. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to that because it can't do what you really need done. And what we really need done, what every human being really needs done is for our consciences to be wiped clean. Because our creation, because our relationship with God is fully restored. And that's what God has sent Jesus to do. Just consider the extent 
to which God is willing to go to bring you into relationship with him and give you full access to his presence, the very thing that you are made for. This is what the author of Hebrews says in verse 11. But when Christ appeared, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, So he's talking about there how the the tabernacle and the temple, those were earthly copies of what uh, the heavenly presence of God is really like. Jesus didn't go to those. He went into the real. He went into the true in heaven. He is in the presence of God in the true temple. In verse 12, he entered once for all into holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, sometimes if you're reading through the Old Testament and you're reading about all these different sacrifices that are made, you're going to start to wonder, like, oh, is, God, is the God of the Bible like every other God that's out there? You screw up, you mess up, or you need him to answer you in some way. You go down to your local temple and you pay for somebody to, have a sac- to offer a sacrifice for you, and then God will do it. So you're out on, a, out on a sea cruise and the weather gets rough, and so you sacrifice, you kill some animals so that God will hear you, so the gods will hear you, and will provide you safe passage. Is that what God is like? Is God like every other God out there? No, the, the answer is he's the exact opposite of every God that's out there. Because those animal sacrifices were just for a time and they were never intended to fully take away sin. They were setting us up for the day when God would do what only God can do and that is he would spill his own blood for you and me. His own blood. What our hearts need, what our conscience requires is a cleansing that only God can do to the sending of his own son to spill his blood in our place. He gave his own blood for you and me. The blood represents, the blood of Jesus represents the payment of a debt. That's why it's called an eternal redemption. Redemption is sort of language, economic language. You go into debt in the ancient world and you don't have welfare. Or, I mean, you don't, have, you, don't have, uh, you don't have a way to get out. You don't have different chapter, chapter 13 or whatever to get out, right? You can't declare bankruptcy in the first century. The way you get out of being in debt is for somebody else to pay that debt for you. It's forgiveness, It's a type of forgiveness. And what Jesus has done is that he has paid a debt. So we all know that when we sin, we owe a debt to somebody or when somebody else sins against us, we know that there's a debt that needs to be paid. And Jesus is paying that debt and he does it once for all time, never to do it again. The sacrificial system was happening all the time, day in, day out, day in, day out. One time a year, high priest would go in. Jesus did it once for all time. His blood was so precious that the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst that we can do to one another as human beings is paid. Paul says in Romans 5, where sin abounded, 
grace abounded even more. I don't know if you have this question at all when you're thinking about Jesus or maybe you're investigating Jesus right now or maybe you've been following Jesus for some time and that's still a question. Why did Jesus really, though, have to die? Why did it have to be a cross? So last year, as a Christian explored in January, and a guy at the table said, yeah, tell me, I don't understand. Why did it have to be a cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? Why couldn't he do that? I forgive you. Just, and just go on. Those of you who have forgiven somebody something really painful, know why it had to be a cross. Because there's no real forgiveness without the person who's been sinned against suffering. You can't forgive without suffering. See, when you and I sin against one another, there's a debt, and we all know it. There's a debt. There's been an injustice, and that injustice needs to be paid for somehow. When you and I refuse to forgive somebody, what we're saying is that you've got to pay that debt. You're the offender, you pay that debt. But when we forgive somebody, we're saying, I'll pay that debt. When we forgive other people, we're, we're making promises to them. I'll never bring this up again. I'll never bring this up to uh, use this against you. I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to let this offense get in our relation, our personal relationship with another. I'm not going to let this offense do it. What does that mean? When you're forgiving somebody, you are choosing to suffer to keep that relationship whole. And what God has done in sending Jesus, he has devised a way to destroy evil without destroying us. Because he willing willingly suffered for our forgiveness so our conscience could be made clean so our relationship with God can be made whole I don't know about you but knowing that the God of the Bible is the God who suffers is greatly helpful to me because when we live in the world that we live in and if God were removed and distant from the suffering, why would we want to believe in that kind of God? But the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus, presents to us a God who's willing to suffer with us, along with us, in our ways, for us, willingly. Amazing what God's done. And it's that kind of forgiveness that can actually take away the guilt that you and I have and nothing else can. So how do we apply this? One of the things I would say is that knowing this about who God is helps us to be honest with our conscience. When our conscience lets us know that we've done something wrong, even something wrong that we don't feel like we could ever be forgiven or forgive ourselves for. We can be honest with our conscience and say, yes, I did that. I did that. And then let your conscience drive you, compel you to the God who's there, who paid for the things that you are troubled and conscious about. And let Jesus take them. 
John Owen wrote this as he's paraphrasing the teachings of Jesus and what, he's, what Jesus is willing to do. He says, Christ says this to us. Christ says this to all of us. I made this agreement with my father that I should come and to take your sins and to bear them away. They are my lot now. Give your burden. Give me your burden. Give me all your sins. You do not know what to do with them, but I know how to dispose of them well enough so that God, my father, is glorified and your soul is delivered. That means is that We can be honest with our consciences and say, yes, I have really done the things that my conscience is telling me to do, and even more than that. And it drives us to God who says, let me take that for you. I've done everything necessary to cleanse your heart. My son spilled his blood for you. What the other thing is that we can do to apply this is that one of, the most, one of the most difficult things for us to believe as human beings is that we're really forgiven and to live in that forgiveness with freedom. So in our conversations and in our discipleship groups and in missional communities and in our homes, make much of the power of the forgiveness of God and what Jesus has done for us. One author Murray McChain says, for every one look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. Take 10 looks at Jesus. We need to remind ourselves over and over and over again, this is what Jesus has done for us. Walk in freedom. Walk in freedom. The debt's been paid once and for all, never to have to be paid again for your past sins, your current sins, and the future ones you haven't even dreamed of doing yet. They're all paid for. Walk in freedom. One of the sweetest words that a human being can say to another human being, most humbling, powerful words that another human being can say to another human being, is I forgive you. How much more when the God of the universe says, I forgive you. Come into my presence. If you're in the room, would you please stand? I want to pray for us. Let's sing one more song together. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for your love, Father, that compelled you to send Jesus for us. Jesus, thank you for your grace and for your willingness to faithfully die in our place, to spill your own blood, to purchase us back, that we could go into your presence. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for invading into our lives and that you are in us right now in relationship with Jesus and spirit. I ask that you would speak words of comfort and words of calm to our hearts that because of Jesus, we can be in your presence and not be afraid. And one day, one day we will see you face to face 
the one for whom we were made. And you will welcome us in. Thank you, God. We are grateful. We are grateful. In Jesus' name.